The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, we're going to talk all about parasites. That sounds fun. Actually, you know, kind of gross. Well, it can be both. Right. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Is there a certain mark we're supposed to hit that you're missing? In general? Yeah. I mean, I it's, I don't you don't even want to ask that question. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you doing? I'm doing so well today. Welcome to the Lab Report. Thanks. Welcome, everyone, to the Lab Report. This is a Genova podcast where we talk about functional medicine, uh-huh. specialty lab testing, right. integrative therapeutics, yep. and parasites. Wow. Yeah. Well, last time you told me we were going to do science and technology and machine mechanics, so I'm excited about the parasites. We're going to do both of those things. Okay. We're going to do science and technology, machine mechanics, and parasites. It's going to be like a whole big soup wow. of well, all those things. Of course, you're going to love this show based on what Michael just explained. So you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the podcast. Yes. Hit the rate and review and download buttons, all those good things. And after you do that, and then you've culminated all your feedback, all your thoughts, uh-huh. All your positive uh-huh. reviews, <laughs> your glowing reviews, then you can send them to us Where? at podcast at gdx.net is the email address. Awesome. Um, or you can just leave that review there on iTunes, like Patty mentioned. That's right. Well, I'm so excited whenever we're going to bring people from the lab onto the show because we're so far removed from what exactly is happening in the lab that. I always learn something amazing when we talk to them. They're so smart. Yeah, we're just the docs, you know? Yeah. We're just the ones who look at the report and sort of figure out what it means clinically. Mm-hmm. But, like, what goes into generating like those results? That's right. Clueless. <laughs> but, thankfully... We One have of s- us more than the other. What? Wait, what? Me. Oh. Thankfully, we have some really smart friends that we can call. And today we're going to call Jim Kelton, who's been on the show before. Jim is, like, the go-to person from a micro standpoint. Whenever we have a micro yeah. question, we go to Jim Kelton. If That's it's right. related to bugs, Jim's, He knows. Oh, yeah. He knows bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, And today we're going to focus mostly on parasites. That's true. Say. Last time you was here, we talked about yeast, and so now we're going to focus on parasites. And the thing about parasites is, like, they're kind of ominous. You know it's what I mean? So, yeah. There's this sort yes. of, like, spooky nature to parasites. It's because they're like ticks. They're, they, they feed off of you. They live off you. You know, yeah. doesn't that give you just this sort of like deep, dark, insidious image of them? Yeah, and you can't really see them, but then when you look at pictures of them up close, they even look scary, right? Like, yeah. Have you seen Giardia? It's a scary looking thing. Yeah. Like hookworm, they've got these like, yeah. yeah. Gross. Not a fan. <laughs> Who is? Right. Well, you guys, Jim Kelly right. is. Well, Jim we, is. We should create a, a meetup for people <laughs> against parasites. <laughs> and then in the meantime, we should, uh, we should get ready because this is. Science-ness, technology, and machine and mechanics. Science-ness. Technology. Machine and mechanics. Lab stuff. Uh, maybe we can start 
uh, just as a brief refresher, Jim, with telling us a little bit about what you do here at Genova. Yeah, um, I am a manager here at Genova Diagnostics. I have a bunch of different divisions under me, microbiology, parasitology, um, molecular biology, and I also work in the specimen procurement area known as LSS. Well, today we want to focus on parasitology, um, kind of like we did for yeast. Okay. So let's start out by talking about just parasites in general and parasitic infection. Mm -hmm. As you said last time, parasitized, or people who are parasitized, yeah, which is a great word. word. But there is this common belief out there that parasites are underdiagnosed, at least as it relates to the GI tract, and that they're more common than maybe conventional medicine portrays. And I know this is kind of a, I don't know, it's an interesting area, interesting subject. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it uh, with all of your expertise in this area. So my educated answer would be maybe. I would say, I would answer this question like this. If I have a population of people and I test them for the routine parasites that we would look for in the United States, I would say to you, we are not missing on a diagnosis that we are picking up if you are parasitized. Uh, there's several great testing platforms out there. The oldest and most reliable in my mind I, is the microscope. Mm -hmm. uh, that has been a stalwart of diagnosis since Lee and Hoek first identified um, these animalcules through that. And to this day, continue to be very, very effective at diagnosing parasites. We have antigen testing, we now have PCR testing, and there's serological testing for those parasites, usually outside of that. So to answer it that way, I would say, yes, if I have a tested population, we are not missing it, nor are we probably underdiagnosing it. Mm -hmm. Now, to move forward, parasite by its nature is designed to live in a host as long as it can. So it doesn't want you to know he's there. He wants to live off you and take all your nutrients and, and hopefully not alert your defense systems that he's doing so. And to that end, if I have a population of people that are not tested, then there's a good chance that a large percentage of uh, the population might have a parasite. So basically you're saying it's possible to be carrying a parasite and not have any symptoms other than possibly a, a nutritional deficiency? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately for the parasites, they're not real good at doing that all the time. <laughs> Giardia yeah. makes himself known in some pretty disgusting ways. Right. <laughs> and to me, the hysteric, uh, you know. Um, so they wouldn't like for you to get rid of them, so they try mm -hmm. uh, to go undetected. Okay, so when we talk about the microbiome, we know there are commensal bacteria that work together to try to keep us in balance. Is there such a thing as a commensal parasite? Well... I tell you, had we had this conversation even five years ago, my answer would have been completely different. But with with the microbiome knowledge that we have gained and some of the papers that are coming out there is really interesting, some of the things that are coming out. Let's just use uh, one, blastocystis. Mm -hmm. um, blastocystis is a parasite that most conventional labs don't even bother to call. Most don't even know what it is. Um, it would just be your, your higher quality parasitology labs like Genova mm -hmm. that pick it out and identify it on the reports. Most people feel that it's a commensal and that it is not causing any harm being there. Um, 
I have had, I, I, we see it's one of our most commonly encountered parasites. It's uh, probably in 10 to 12% of all the samples we look at. Uh, I have had doctors write in that for years they had tried to cure their patient of GI symptoms. And when we identified a blastocystis and they took action to eradicate it, their patient was miraculously cured and they were so grateful. I've also started to see papers from fairly reputable sources come out there and say that blastocystis can be associated with a very diverse microbiome, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's really, like I said, I'm starting to look at things in a little different frame nowadays with all the microbiome information coming out there. Mm. Yeah. Do I think, you know, commensal at most commensals, I mean, putting blasto aside, um, no, I, I, I don't. I think what happens is most parasites can exist without symptoms, and then something happens. Your microbiome is disturbed, or you ingest some sort of chemicals or something, which or you develop a sensitivity to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so a, a typically non-pathogenic parasite all of a sudden can cause you some level degree of discomfort. And a great example of this for me is Eustrons aloides, Sturcoralis. It's, um, I think, endemic to the Mississippi Valley area, Tennessee Valley area of the United States. And really not know you have it, but if you go in and you get large doses of corticosteroids, it throws the parasite into a crazed, what they call a hypersensitivity. Um, in fact, hyperinfection hmm. sensitivity in which it goes nuts and just traverses all through your body. And it can be a deadly condition. Hmm. So commensal is a, a word that's yet to be defined for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I think about other organisms like the Endolamax or mm -hmm. the Pentatrichomonas, right? that uh -huh, are right. considered non-pathogens, but right. under certain conditions yeah. can become, you can become symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's just, Correct. It, it throws everything into question because when I think of the word parasite, it's something that is, you know, taking advantage of the host. And so, you know, to call it a commensal parasite, it seems almost like an oxymoron in definition. Uh, and I just wonder, is, is it doing something that is not harmful then and what is it then what is it taking what is it parasitizing what is it taking advantage of that's a little bit of a philosophical question and i, I think guess, it's more the the term commensal versus non-pathogenic correct and non-pathogenic for me is the better term because it's not it's not causing you any symptoms your body is keeping in check your commensal your microbiome is keeping it in check um, it doesn't belong there it's not you know something that you grew up with like your your micro your typical microbiome but your body's able to keep it in check. Your your and your microbiome is able to keep it in check. It is living off of you. It's eating your bacteria, but it's not causing you any undue symptoms. So I would say non-pathogenics at that point. The problem is when something changes, can that then become a pathogen? And also when you have a non-pathogenic bacterium like Endolimax nana, um, what it could suggest that you've exposed yourself to conditions where you may have picked up some other parasites yeah. Yeah. and that you should be on the them. That makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of parasites trying to be elusive, uh, we know there's different types of parasites and some have intermittent shedding patterns. Is that what helped us drive at using PCR for the parasites that we are testing? Is that one of the factors that 
made us decide these are the organisms that are most appropriate to use PCR for? It was definitely a strong part of the, the consideration. But for some of those, the, the big three, like Giardia, Crypto, and Histo, antigen testing is just as sensitive in some cases. The real thing is we wanted a rapid-sensitive multiplex assay that augmented our microscopy for those parasites, like you said, that shed intermittently or are difficult to see microscopically, like Cyclospora. Mm -hmm. is, uh, you need a specialized stain for that. Cryptosporidium, you need a specialized stain for that. So we wanted a one-shot, sensitive, quick assay for our clients that we could um, get around some of those things that make diagnosis difficult, like the shedding. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. We actually had Ashley Gibbon on the show um, early on, and she kind of did the basic deep dive into what is PCR, you know, how does it work. But when we talk about our GI effects test, we know we're measuring commensal bacteria, we're now measuring targeted parasites, and then we subsequently began subtyping blastocystis with even a different type of PCR. Can you just kind of hit on the, the difference between those methods, just high level? Yeah. All right, so high level, we'll start with commensal bacteria. That's your 16S ribosomal. This is a straight PCR test from the old days where we're basically looking for a target, amplifying that target, and then detecting if it's there and doing a semi-quantitation based on um, the dyes that are there and the optical densities. qPCR, or real-time PCR, is the assay we developed for our parasitology panel. What it does is it's very similar to 16S in that it's doing a PCR reaction for a specified target, but as it's doing that, it's monitoring itself. And as it hits certain thresholds of the target, it's able to stop and tell us that this is positive. We don't have to take it to the end. So it's a much quicker assay, very sensitive, and we can multiplex that uh, to a point. There, there's a saturation point. But it's a very fast, very quick, real-time, that's why I call it real-time PCR. Then there's the really neat thing a lot of people have asked about, next-gen sequencing. This is a technology that basically is sequencing all of the DNA that is present. So you get this huge amount of information in a very short time from multiple different types of targets. So it's not really... It's, it's actually sequencing and resequencing all the DNA that's there instead of a target piece of DNA. So it's giving you a kind of a broad overview of maybe all the, all the people that are there in a way. Exactly. All the people in the room, it's measuring, and it's also to some degree being able to tell you how related they are to each other. So maybe we have several families in the room. Hmm. But then how do, you, how do you drill that down to be a subtype of blastocystis by using NextGen? Because of the software. We oh, can okay. tell it we're just looking for this Got family. It. We don't Got care it. about anything else. I see. All we want is this guy and then maybe his brothers and sisters. Got it. Well, you know, it's interesting being in parasitology for all of the years that you've been doing this job. We you know we get a lot of clinicians on the phone with you know, GI effects results, and they say, my patient saw a worm in their stool and your test didn't find it. And even sometimes we get pictures sent to us by clinicians, which is fun. We always forward them And to we you. always forward them directly to Jim Kelton. <laughs> but you get a lot of these pictures, and you hear this a lot of people who think they are seeing parasites in their stool only to find out that it's not. How common is this, and, and what do you say to that? Um, 
I mean, I think it's quite common with we. If people believe that they have a parasite, they're going to be looking for things. And unfortunately, your body can create things in your GI tract that strongly resemble worms. Mucus casings, for example, mm -hmm. are actually mucus that has rolled over on itself and can look very much like a worm. Some uh, vegetable fibers that come through, if you had a, a type of salad or something, they can come through and also look like a worm. And once you get an experienced pair of eyes to maybe like a dissecting scope, you're able to see that the morphology just isn't there to confirm that this is a parasite. I, I can firmly attest that if you're not trained on it and you saw something came out like I just described, you would probably think you have a worm. Unfortunately, probably 98% of everything we get that way turns out to be just that, a mucus casing, vegetable matter, or some other body that is not a human parasite. Yeah, and that's where the, the, technolo the technologists are expert in things like this. You know, this is right. a, a little bit of a side question, too, from a technology standpoint and looking at microscopic O&P. You're looking a lot of times for different uh, ova and different eggs. And I just imagine, because I've never done this work, that, you know, a parasite egg are all going to look the same-ish. So, like, how do you, uh, what are you looking for when you see these different eggs? Like, what, what are the differences between them? Just from, I don't, is there a way to describe that from a high-level point of view? Yeah, they, um, they actually do have quite a bit of variability. The first thing that we use is size. Uh, the microscope has what's called an ocular micrometer built into it. And so the technologist that spots the egg is able to measure it. So the first thing we do is we make sure that it fits in the right size. And then there's morphological characteristics. Um, some have what's called a perculum, some don't. Some have interior structure that you can see. Some are actually developing, and you can see that development stage. So there's a lot of little key things that a parasitologist is looking for when they spot one of those eggs. Um, a couple are challenging, like for example, tinea. You know, there's tinea solium, tinea saginata, beef tapeworm, pork mm -hmm. tapeworm. Uh, their eggs look identical. You cannot call just by looking at the eggs. You have to do additional testing with that. So there are some uh, restrictions and limitations with microscopy. But for the most part, especially among different genus and species, you're able to tell them pretty quickly by having a knowledge base and using the tools you have with you to differentiate them. Got it. Got it. Well, as a side note, since we're talking about microscopy, a question that comes up quite a bit is we talk about reporting it on the GI effects as rare, few, many, moderate. And the question always comes up, well, how many is that? Like, how do you answer that question? And does it matter? Yeah, that's the, the better question. Does it matter if, if I tell you you have 10 tinea eggs versus two? <laughs> is it, yeah. you know? Um, right. And the answer is, as far as quantitation, depending on the parasite, no. It really doesn't matter. If you've got one egg, that means you probably have more. And if the sample that we collected just happened to, to not get the, get the full load of them. The quantitation scale we use is developed by CDC. And it, it's basically just an arbitrary um, standardization of how many eggs do you see per field of view. And it's adjusted for whatever ocular micro, um, ocular size you use, 40x, 20x, et cetera. So it's really just arbitrary. But then to, to translate that same question into the bacteriology part, we also get the, you know, 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus, 
on the culture piece of that. Yeah. And, and essentially, can you briefly explain what that means? Because we get that question a lot, too. For bacteria, when we give you a semi-quantitation at 1, 2, 3, 4 plus, that becomes a little bit more useful because it's, it's telling you that, you know, typically we're used to seeing this at a 1 or 2 plus and we're seeing it at a 4 plus. That means that there could be a possible overgrowth condition going on, a disturbance in your microbiome. So that's why we use that scale to base our antibiotic susceptibility testing as well. It's telling us that, you know, there's a lot of this here. When it, especially if it outgrows all the normal flora, like lactobacillus, alpha strep, et cetera, if we have a four plus pathogen, we know that we got something going on here and that you need to get some antibiotic sensitivity information to mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And that's based on how it grows on the plate. Is that correct? Like the quadrants of the plate? That, that's right. That's correct. Okay. So I've got one last question before <laughs> we, we let you go and stop <laughs> bothering you and wasting your time with our nonsense. But uh, last time we asked you about sandwiches, <laughs> and this is a little bit, it's still about food, but it's also a little bit clinical uh-huh. as well. Uh, so knowing what you know. About parasites. About parasites. Do you eat sushi? Absolutely. You do? No. <laughs> no, no, I do not eat sushi. Um, it doesn't appeal to me, so let, let me just qualify that. Okay. You know, to all you sushi lovers out there, it's not uh, something. They, we developed fire back in the Stone Ages for a reason, and one of them was to cook fish. Um, no, yeah, if we're looking at just strictly infectious disease, I mean... Most reputable sushi dealers are, are pretty much going to screen out a lot of what you don't want to get. Mm-hmm. But there are increasing cases of things like anisakiasis, which is a, a little round worm that you get when you eat under or not cooked fish. They can cause you some pretty severe problems in the, your GI tract and sometimes your throat. It's also called the herring worm. Um, Diphylobothrium, which mm-hmm. is a fish tapeworm, that's on the rise too. Um, mm. And then there's there's the, the the bacterial pathogens that you could run into, things like Listeria and Salmonella, uh, with no cooking. And if they're there, even if it's introduced by a handler, yeah. you're going to get that disease. <laughs> so no, I would not eat sushi. Yeah, and I bet that's fairly common for microbiologists or parasitologists to not eat sushi. I would think so. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is for this one. Uh, Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we've taken up so much of your time. Uh, Thanks for for coming on and spending a minute with us. Uh, We love talking about parasites. We love it. You love talking about it as much. Any any other parting tidbits on parasites that uh, you want to share with us? Um, You know, parasites, I love them. I love talking about them. Now, things that we didn't touch on, like, it's relayed back to your first question. As temperatures warm up, parasites are on the move. They are moving out of areas where they were typically confined to and moving into more northern climes. Um, also, as, as a species, we, we're doing increasingly fun things like survival camps and stuff like mm-hmm. that where people are eating raw food. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for example, crayfish. If you eat crayfish in this country, I don't think a lot of people know, but there is an endemic lung fluke to this country uh, that if you eat raw fish, you could eat raw crayfish, you could accidentally pick up called Paragonimus kilicati. And 
to the first question, do we underdiagnose parasites? This is one we might. Now, it's not a GI parasite, so it fell out of our conversation, but it presents with symptoms like the flu and can be misdiagnosed if people don't know the history. And we actually had one of those here at um, uh, Genova. We had one single egg and we debated on calling it. We don't like to call one single egg, but then we did and we called the physician and got some backstory. And his client had been participating in a survival group back in the Mississippi backwaters, eating raw crayfish, which just fitted perfectly. And uh -huh. we nailed it. So nice. it's really kind of, interesting um, topic as, as climate changes, as human activities change. We do a lot of aquaculture, which condenses fish into small areas, which enables them to pass on parasites and then enables that to pass on to us, especially if we eat sushi. Um, so yes, it's, it's a really cool thing. I'd love to talk about it. You know, and then on the, flop, on the far flip side of that, people are purposefully ingesting or infecting themselves with things like hookworm yeah. to combat Crohn's disease, and they have had mm. great success with it. So parasitology, which is an old, old science, is really all over the news nowadays with really fascinating topics. Yeah, it gives us a lot to keep an eye on and uh, have further discussions, for sure. That's right. And we're just so thankful that you took the time out of your day to come yeah. talk to us today, Jim. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. Jim Kelton is so smart. He's an intelligent person. He's like absolutely. The, the sage of all things bug. <laughs> <laughs> I always learn stuff. When is I that his unofficial Kelton. title? Should we well, put that on a business card well, for Jim? Christine Stubbe's the queen of all things poop and bug. This is your job here. I know. Giving people these well, I think long nicknames <laughs> for their well, I think unofficial titles. J Jim Kelton's more just like a sage. You know what I mean? It's more like this scholarly sage when i think of it. a sage i think of somebody like up on top of a mountain yes which That's would be a going. weird place <laughs> to be talking about parasites for, well and it doesn't seem like he'd get a lot of exposure to the things that he loves <laughs> at the top of the mountain like how he, do you know we lost him and i bet you he could find several different things that would infect him he's going to carry the microscope up to the you top of know. the mountain he's dedicated okay so what are we doing next episode Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to have a special guest. Ooh, is it a secret? Yeah, it's a secret. Okay. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> no, it's not. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Patty, I think we need to work on our transitions. Oh, I know. We do a lot of, uh-huh. Great. Yeah. Wow. There's some weird noises that I had to clip out. Uh-oh. Like what, this what one here. Oh, gotcha. Nice. Perfect. That's just weird. Yeah. And it uh, it becomes even weirder when you loop it Don't over do and it. over. Don't do it. No, I mean, you, you should just take a listen. Uh, gotcha. Nice. Perfect. Uh, gotcha. Nice. Perfect. Uh, gotcha. Nice. Perfect. Uh, gotcha. Nice. Perfect.